Hello and welcome, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield inviting you into another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. I don't have much to say before we dive into this week's delightful conversation with Patricia Gray, concert pianist turned pioneering animal communication researcher. Except to thank the 117 of you supporting the show on Patreon right now. I just published on the free public Patreon feed this week the latest draft chapter of my book in progress, How to Live in the Future. And this essay, The Future Acts Like You, will be familiar to any listener of this podcast. A lot of the themes have been explored, especially in recent shows with J.F. Martell on sequels and simulacra, as well as John Danaher's episode about love and sex in the age of convincingly human robotics. If we go back a little further, I had my friend Sarah Huntley on the show, episode 29, talking about the importance of training our machine intelligences correctly, raising them with love, if you will. And that certainly came up in this essay also. So, yeah, go check that out at patreon.com slash michaelgarfield if you like. There is a prodigious amount of free music, like what you're listening to right now on the site as well. And thanks to everybody who has been rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. Last I checked, we were 79 votes in, which means very close to 100, a fine goal. Get this show into the ears and the minds of a larger swath of the folks who will appreciate it. Your ratings and reviews are going to be especially important in the weeks and months to come as I'm going to step up the production schedule for this show. I have a huge backlog of recorded interviews I've been sitting on, and it pains me, friends, to keep their glory from you any longer than I absolutely must, and so I'm going to hustle hard and try to put out six or more episodes a month this summer. That means lots of editing and repetitive computer busy work, so if you feel like chipping me couple bucks that would be really cool i will be sure as well to put out plenty of extras for the patreon folks as usual all right enough about that this episode is one of the longer in the making episodes of this show and i think actually one of the strongest and most essential conversations that this show has ever had precisely because at this moment in history we are totally opening up our idea of what it means to be human and what it means to be non-human and what it means to be sentient, what it means to be alive, what it means to be conscious. These things are all up for review right now. And in few places is this more obvious or more ethically urgent than when it comes to the study of biomusic animal communication through music and the study of our innately musical brains. So everyone, I am pleased to welcome you to the wonder that is Patricia Gray.
It's wonderful to have you on Future Fossils. It's a delight to be here. I don't even know where to start with you because you've got such an eclectic, storied life and, you know, you've done so many things. I, I, I think by this point, I will have introduced you in the, the pre-roll and, and told people that, you know, that you're a pianist and an animal music and, and biological music researcher, but I would still love to start with you just talking a little bit about your life and your history and how you came into the sciences through the arts. I think that's a that's a really compelling place to start this. Well, I guess um, I'm sort of living proof of all of the um, the predictions that you you should be prepared to segue multiple times in your life's career (laughs) and, you know, sort of follow your muse um, because that's exactly, you know, sort of the blueprint of life. I grew up in a musical family and we had an orchestra, for instance, that would rehearse in our home. My father was a violinist and my mother was a pianist and organist and music was the family's uh, language and the, you know so much of the way we related to each other and to the world. So you know it just sort of followed that I would become a professional musician. And so I was at the piano from the time that I was an infant. I just followed that into uh, undergraduate career and and you know went through all of the degree programs, but basically I'm a conservatory trained kid. Um, And I moved out of uh, the academic training into a professional life as a concert pianist. And during all of that uh, kind of preceding career, you know, I had a, a tremendous rich experience as a chamber musician and as a soloist. And so I have often thought about how powerful music is, not only in my life, but in the lives of the audience members. Um, It's always been so interesting to me that after a concert, people will come back and greet you as though you're a family member and, you know, be so uh, involved in telling you, you know, how they are moved and, and be very emotional about all of it. It's been, to me, uh, one of those aspects of, of making music that is thrilling for, for me at, that I I can be part of that experience. So living through that experience, it you know, it, I have uh, had a career where I was brought into the National Academy of Sciences as the artistic director of their chamber music ensemble and national musical arts. Was in, and I was in residence uh, in that capacity at the academy for 21 years. Uh, it was 
you know, it's one of those moments where you don't really think that this is going to last and then it just keeps unfolding and it gets richer and richer as it goes along. I happened to get into the academy at a time when biodiversity was being uh, developed as a concept. And I was brought into an international conference as a performing musician at the academy. And because this was a conference that focused on the whole topic of biodiversity, in came from all over the world these remarkable scientists who are engaged in really understanding how life on the planet is integrated and and relates its whole survival mechanisms to the community of life that's around it. It was a fascinating time for me because many of the people that I immediately engaged with as a musician were people who were at the top of their game in animal communication. And we started to have a conversation about how animal communication had been studied up to that point, which was essentially looking at how animal communication could be translated into language. You know, basically language was being overlaid as, you know, the the format, the, the recipe, the formula for understanding animal communication. And that had provided a lot of, problems uh, regarding, well, there were just a lot of blind alleys for the animal communication people because you, you get into a perspective where you're looking for patterns of sound that are repeated that always mean the same thing in the same context. And it just doesn't work like that. It doesn't even work like that with English. <laughs> but, you know, that, that was the way um, it was being looked at. Anyway, we, we, th- there was a group of us that sort of were attracted to the idea that maybe there's um, a, 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 an unfolding of uh, research and, and a, a deeper conversation about animal communication that may be really more related to music. And that really intrigued me because, you know, as I was saying, I have been deeply questioning, you know, my understanding of what music was. And so uh, this group of, of people that, you know, included some marvelous people like Luis Baptista and Bernie Krause and Roger Payne and let's see, Mark Tremo and so on, we all decided to call ourselves the Biomusic Program, and we became kind of a subset of, of the music, the Chamber Music Ensemble and Residence, and we started actually collaborating and investigating uh, music and animal sounds. And I have uh, continued to segue my career into really pursuing those questions about 
essentially what we're what I'm looking at is the evolution of music making in our species. That's where we really, you know, sort of get centered here. And if you look at music as human music, then you get stuck very quickly. So I'm going to segue from using that word music to music making. So music making is a process. Human music is a product. So I'm going to go to process versus product. Mm. So the process of music making in our species, I focus on three specific areas. One is called beat entrainment, and that's our ability to hear um, not only music but other patterns of sound around us and find the underlying connection, rhythmic connection, to all of those short, long kinds of relationships that create that pattern. And all normal human beings are able to do that. It's a universal trait in our species. The second thing that I look at is pitch discrimination. Again, something that all of us in our natural form are able to just consider that is different than is different than those are our brains immediately understand that that's a different thing. Well, if you look at pitch discrimination across uh, species lines, then you get into, you know, a very interesting conversation. The other thing that our species is able to do very easily is that we can recall combinations of time and sound, what we'll call rhythm and frequency patterns, or we could call them melodies or whatever. But at any rate, once we hear something, we can hold on to it, and then we can repeat it um, back to to our satisfaction of what it was. So, for instance, everybody who's listening to this can immediately hear in their heads what a happy birthday sounds like. We all could just sing that right now. If we together, we do. I mean, you, when we're in those occasions, all you have to do is just you know find a common pitch, and we all do it. So that kind of thing called pitch memory. So those are the th- three things that I really focus on: beat entrainment, pitch discrimination, and musical memory. And once you have those fundamentals in our species, you can look at at whether they occur in other species. And that's where the real fun begins. So you came into this through <laughs> resident chamber musician in the National Academy of Sciences. You're collaborating with all these people. I mean, we talked once before and you mentioned that you were sort of delighted and surprised to discover that so many career scientists are also serious amateur musicians. Absolutely. And, and, and so there's this, um, I feel like we can kind of tread a line here between the, the human part of this, the scientific part of this, but 
I mean, it sounds to me like you you just had a totally smooth transition that suddenly you're doing science and not just playing piano. Like what? Like how did you actually end up with your own laboratory? (laughs) Well, uh, it's a steep learning curve, truly, because um, I typically uh, sort of intuit musicality around me. But, you know, science wants to know where is the data. (laughs) And so moving into that world of, well, yeah, you might think that exists, but it probably doesn't. You know, the null hypothesis is the way science proceeds. And so I've had to really ground myself in what science had been thinking about animal communication and also, by the way, um, the outbreak of a lot of research into human musicality, which is over in, it's been in sort of socio um, psychology field, but it's also now in neuroscience. I happened to, to come into this kind of integrated interdisciplinary approach to music at a time when technology was making it possible for us to really drill down deeply into what musicality is in our species. And it hadn't been quite as sophisticated as it is now. So truly the, the challenge for me and for anybody who's in this in in the in this field is to be able to gloss over from one side of the questions from the science side back over to what it's like to actually be in the music you know if you are a a really intense musician there's an experience of music that can inform the science and and it's very very powerful and important to do that because science can get very hung up on technical questions and, and data-driven uh, issues that sort of will become its own pathway. And for me, I find that I have to challenge some of the scientists to come back over into the, the real experience of music in order to, you know, sort of ground what are some of the, the questions that may have been overlooked. That said, it's very, very interesting to me that, I mean, those scientists at the National Academy of Sciences are a tough audience because they are amateur musicians. And so, you know, that common language, excuse me, let me just turn this off. I found myself in training to that beat there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, one of the things that happens in conversation is that our brains immediately entrain to the same beat so that we are able to talk with each other without necessarily interrupting each other, nor do we have to make big stops in order for the other person to be able to pick up and go forward with, you know, an insert or, you know, any kind of of, um, uh, 
sound that that encourages you like uh uh-huh or whatever those are all rhythmically related because our brains just automatically do that sort of thing as an aside you just blew my mind because i've been editing all of the little accidental utterances out of most of the episodes of this show like sometimes it's like six or seven minutes of um you know well and these are these are rhythmic cues. And if the whole goal of this show is to leave a rich data record for people to examine this moment in human history, I have screwed up. I have, I have, I have failed these people in the future. You know, they're like, they're, I'm, I'm hiding our trash or, you know, like vital data from them. But anyway. <laughs> well, all of those little nonverbal sounds and even the gestures that we're making back and forth to each other on this video call are affirming to the the recipient that, yes, I'm with you. And that's done in a rhythmic context. So it's, it's a very enriching kind of experience for both of us because I know that you are with me in this conversation because you're doing this, this rhythmically with me. And by the way, it's kind of interesting because we've all had the experience where Actually, our brains are so cued in with each other that we'll actually start to talk at the same time. And then everybody stops, you know, and there's this <laughs> moment where we try to auto-correct. And then you start at the very same time again, you know, and you keep sort of saying, oh, I'm sorry. Well, no, you first. No, you first kind of thing. We've all had that experience. But it's our brains saying to the other, I'm paying attention to you and we are together. On this, this is a collaborative kind of communication. So, uh, where in the world were where we? Oh, where, how you got your lab? Oh, okay. So, the BioMusic Group reached a point in the year 2000 where we were invited to present our findings, our collaborative findings, at the American Association for the Advancement of Science. I think it, that they claim to be the largest scientific meeting in the world. But anyways, otherwise, you know, they're they're referred to within the the science world as the AAAS. So we landed a a, a very rich spot at the AAAS meeting, and there were um, I think four or five of us that presented that day. It was interesting because. You know, it was it was billed as biomusic. Nobody at that point in time knew what biomusic was, so they sort of gave us a small room. <laughs> well, the audience for that it just exceeded the capacity of the room, and there were people standing out in the hallway. So we knew we were onto something. And shortly after that, we published an article in the journal Science that continues today to just have you know, uh, kind of redundant meaning for so many people who are, who have now come into this world of the musicality of the universe. So that, that article just sort of launched a, a big response. And the New York Times did a big piece uh, on biomusic called, I think it was called something like the Sonata for whales birds and humans or something like that anyway got you know got a lot of press then we decided 
because there was oh there's so much outpouring so much interest from the public about this that maybe we should approach the National Science Foundation the NSF to see if they would be interested in funding an exhibition about this because both science and the public were getting very interested in this kind of integrated approach uh, toward the evolution of music making. So the National Science Foundation gave us money to indeed create a science exhibition, which is now still out on the road nine years later, uh, and that's called Wild Music, Sounds and Songs of Life. And over a million and a half people have... Uh, visited that exhibition all over the country at science museums. And every time, you know, it opens in a new science museum, (laughs) I get all these emails from people who who are just so touched by this whole topic because, you know, music is is such an important part of our species. So um, after the science exhibition, And the success of that, I also went back to the National Science Foundation and said, you know, I think that there is a way for us to create a curriculum for children. And and I would, you know, I think that could be something that would be very powerful because, as I previously stated, all of these things about our musicality are innate within our species, essentially Let's just sum it up by saying humans are born musical. Therefore, you're given a set of tools to children that they can then learn to use in order to access science. So essentially, the curriculum is focused on the science of music, and that curriculum is called U-Beats. And I've applied that. with teachers and kids of every dimension. And it's a highly successful kind of, of curriculum for kids. So now I've got research that I've been, Oh, I, I didn't, I haven't talked about the research. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, well, I mean, you've done some really cool stuff too. So yeah, let's open that box. So um, when all of the, um, the publicity about biomusic hit the New York Times and the journal Science. I was approached by scientists who are interested in animal communication research. And so my first uh, experience was with bonobo apes. And I was invited to Georgia Tech to interact with a group of bonobos that were in the language research program there. And the reason that I was asked to become part of a research group there was because two of them, both of them, by any stretch of the imagination, probably the most famous bonobos in the world, Kanzi and and his sister Pambanisha, they had just had a I think it was a three-day session of improv with the musician Peter Gabriel, who had come there. And because these particular bonobos had been raised 
in an encultured human bonobo kind of setting, those bonobos were already familiar with musical instruments. So they could actually sit at a synthesizer without pounding on it, but actually use it as a tool for interaction in a musical way. But also uh, more sophisticated than the average you know, human child who, you know, typically will go to a keyboard and frustrated, you know, will just sort of do a cluster of notes. But but those uh, bonobos in their improv with Peter were playing one note at a time. And I was so interested in that that um, I was brought into, you know, how do we actually examine uh, musicality in our closest living relatives, bonobos. Oops. Oops. I have a cat. Speaking <laughs> of very, animal communication, yeah. It's very jealous if I'm not <laughs> So um, I, I started interacting with bonobos uh, to try to, to, to get a handle on how to actually research musicality in that species. And it was actually Kanzi one day who showed me how to do that. I was waiting for him or for actually the folks, the people who who work with him just kind of set up um, a, a, a synthesizer for him and sort of get him ready to do something. He was on one side of a class while I was on another side. He and I had had really spent a lot of time together, so we knew each other very well. And I was just kind of sitting there sort of rhythmically uh, repeating um, kind of a hand slap on the glass wall, you know, in just a regular kind of da, 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 da kind of thing in boredom, actually. And coming back at me on the other side was my mirror image that here came Kanzi doing the the rhythmic entrainment with my rhythmic slapping of the glass wall. And I thought, holy cow, this is really, really interesting. I wonder how long he'll do this. Well, he just kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And pretty soon he was brought some green onions, which he just loved, and he rolled over on his back, and he started doing that rhythmic engagement with me with his foot. And so we just kept doing that on and on. And I thought, this is, this is the way into this, this, this particular research with great apes is let's look at rhythmic entrainment. How do you find the beat? And so that has been the center of research with bonobo apes. And we have, um, I, you know, I work with, uh, neuroscientist Ed Large, and he and I have proven in an article uh, that bonobos have the ability to entrain to a human beat, to a human drummer. Um, because of the sociality of beat entrainment with each other, we have always structured the methodology of that research around a bonobo entraining to a human drummer. Now, because those particular bonobos were so highly enculturated to humans, we did that research with 
uh, zoo bonobos at the Jacksonville Zoo in Florida to demonstrate that that is an an innate ability of bonobos. Mm. But I continue to work with Kanzi and a group of bonobos that have now are now living in Iowa at the uh, Ape Conservation and Cognition Institute. So just out of curiosity, you mentioned that this is innate, like in your TEDx talk, you even show rhythmic entrainment. Uh, this really cute clip of a seal. You, a sea got, lion. Oh, a sea lion. Pardon. How embarrassing. But um, you show the sea lion entrained at 130 BPM electronic music. And then again at 137. And, you know, it's like raving out. So this seems beyond it just being sort of fundamental to human beings. It's, it's spreading throughout the tree of life. So why do you think it is that white men can't dance? <laughs> like what, like what is going on here? If zoo bonobos can get the groove, then why do some people, do you think it's just a matter of like, uh, they're thinking about it too much? It's like a self-awareness complication or or what are we are we like poisoned by our technological environments this is like brain damage on display well um actually you're asking a very interesting question um let me just create a little context here in the uh tedx talk that i do i show a cockatoo called snowball and the sea lion ronan from the the rhythmic entrainment approach to understanding musicality in other species, there have been a, a fabulous growth of interest from other scientists. And so other species have been looked at. And if you go online and uh, Google snowball, you'll see this uh, bird who is um, a rescue bird. I mean, this is the video is actually done in, in the bird rescue site of somebody who's just putting on a recording, I think it's the Beastie Boys, and Snowball just takes off doing this amazing dance. But here's the context for Snowball's entrainment. He is interacting actually with a human who's dancing as well. And so... My colleague, Ani Patel, Anirub Patel, who's done the research with Snowball, in order to make sure that Snowball wasn't just imitating, but could actually find the beat on his own, again, didn't want to interrupt the sociality of two species dancing together, essentially, to the Beastie Boys. So what he did was he put earphones on the human and played the Beastie Boys at a different tempo than what Snowball was hearing so that (laughs) the human was actually dancing to a slightly different beat, a little slower one than what Snowball was listening to. And so that was so upsetting to Snowball that he actually turned around and stopped looking at the human, (laughs) but he stayed and trained to the beat. The sea lion research is being done by my colleague, Peter Cook. And 
uh, that uh, sea lion's name is Ronan, and he wanted to see whether Ronan could actually find, find the beat and also, as you mentioned, prove that you can change the tempo and Ronan will continue to find the beat at the, at the different tempi. So um, there's been a, a, just a tremendous outgrowth of research into different species looking at this, uh, the sociality of beat entrainment. So we now have um, a collection of animals that live in social contexts who are able to find the beat. Now, one of the things that comes up in the questions is, well, you know, how come dogs don't dance then? Well, the answer to that is because their bodies are not linked in a way where they can have that kind of control of their physical um, makeup. Just makes it, doesn't make it possible for them to have that kind of fine refinement to the beat. So I would suggest that if you really believe that white men can't dance, and I, I don't necessarily believe that, <laughs> I mean, we can go to many, many dance schools and, and look at Fred Astaire movies and see that that's not the case. But it really has to do with you know, just how well connected you are physically, brain to body. So it's, um, you know, it's a matter of practice, essentially. So fine motor control. Yes. It's interesting that you bring up Patel because I actually saw him give a talk at UC Irvine in 2010 about music and language. It was called Music, Language, and the Brain. And it, I was, it's, it's a weird synchronicity that I have a stack of old notebooks that I've torn apart and saved the most relevant pages from sitting on my desk when you brought him up. So you might have seen me tear through that stack to find these rather feisty notes I wrote about my frustrations with that talk. I don't know if it's still the case, but it sounded to me like at the time he was asking the question about the relationship between music and language and whether music basically has accepted or co-opted neurological systems that were evolved for language and like whether there was a selection for music and a selection for language, which to me sounded like one, the guy's not a musician and two, I mean, I know it's 2010 and that's years and years ago, but he actually did mention the bonobo lab and some of the parrot family elephant family work. But how do you understand that relationship? Like, do you, do you feel as I guess I do after years of reflection on this, that music is sort of the substrate out of which language grows? Because, you know, you've got that whole thing about, you mentioned melodic memory, the memory of melodic phrases. I think I'm going to have to take care of a dog. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. That's okay. I love this for being an accurate record of the way that I'm having a conversation with an entire menagerie or ecosystem <laughs> over there. 
it's <laughs> you are so right about that. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, there are, in my estimation, uh, valid reasons for thinking that music really is the basic, the fundamental aspect to how communication systems evolve. And just as in my estimation, you know, and, you know, the, obviously the jury is still out on this, but I come from a perspective where I do believe that language rides on this music, music co-communication system that is kind of a fundamental aspect to the way life is connected. That's my particular bias. And of course, it's up to me to try to prove that, but that's where I'm coming from. And there are all kinds of cross conversations about that in the scientific community. But from the way I look at it, just as human music, you know, co-ops this, what I'm going to call the musical communication system that, that, you know, is the context, the, the basic ABCs for how communication takes place. That's the way I look at the way language has evolved as well. And so, I mean, we've been talking about beat entrainment, but we could go on to the, you know, pitch discrimination as well. And, you know, how our brains and other brains really focus on how frequency patterns are used as signals of recognition and communicative, collaborative kind of environmental community. And, you know, when you think about um, the way birdsong evolves into a, a culture of communication, I mean, we think about the ability to discriminate as... Uh, something that sophisticated brains do. In order to really be a creative, complex kind of brain, to be able to manipulate frequency patterns and create new things out of them, there are bird species that do that. There are elephant species that do that. There are whales that do that. So we're not alone on, on the planet when it comes to being able to create very sophisticated patterns. And even birds that, you know, we think are just kind of one-note johnnies, even though they've come in with a certain combination of uh, pitches that are signals of their, their species, as we all know, not every group of birds in an environment sings that that particular pattern the same way. There are cultures of chickadees that or song sparrows that make different combinations so that the the importance of variation is also an element to being able to recognize frequency patterns. So there's all this flexibility that happens across multiple species lines so that when we hear a pattern, we say, oh, I know who that is. And it's a, you know, it's a signature sound. 
I understand exactly who that neighbor is over there and, you know, what's going on. It's one of those things that um, Bernie Krauss talks about, the, the importance of the sonic environment, that there is a community of sounds that all of the, the species in that particular biome understand as being okay. You know, this is normal. This is natural. You know, that particular species is there and that particular species is there. This is where we are. And, you know, when everybody is sort of in a harmonized environment, then there's, there's a, an acoustic ecology that is part of that particular biome. And if you start messing around with that, uh, then you start to impact all of the species that are there. So it's that's like uh, wasn't it, I think it was Patrick Flanagan. I think it was his presentation at the I saw at the Global Sound Conference in 2008 where he talked about an epidemic of pet anxiety due to the noise of appliances. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of the psychological issues that domestic animals are dealing with is that their their hearing is much much finer than ours and there's they're attuned to things like the dog trapped inside a skyscraper apartment complex is like listening to the skyscraper go back and forth He's listening to ambulances in the street below and these are not sounds that are themselves tuned to the psychology of so <laughs> like and you you gotta wonder i think we sort of paper over our animal identity with this sort of modern human thing but at the same time i know a lot of people that are that just go nuts where they can like hear the tube of a fluorescent light bulb or the television is on like i'm one of these people and i don't know maybe just put that over to the side in terms of like how it is how how dramatically and how rapidly we've changed our own acoustic environment over the last even like 50 years and how poorly understood those effects on us and on the other creatures that we coexist with really are. Well, you know, in well, let's start first in, in the natural world. Okay, because in the natural world, the importance of sound is frequently underrated. And, you know, we've all had the experience of what it feels like to be in a restaurant that's way too loud or at a party that's way too loud. And the sounds around you are masking your ability to talk to your neighbor. You know, the band is playing too loudly or whatever, but they're playing in a, a frequency zone that is makes it impossible for you to talk so that your neighbor can hear you or vice versa. And that happens in nature. I mean, we, the California, I think it's a, I think it's a a sparrow. I'll have to check that. But the traffic on the interstates in California have masked the ability of that bird's call to be heard by its, its uh, con specifics. And so, the ability for that bird to actually find a mate or its community has been overwhelmed by the sound of the traffic on the interstates. And interestingly, that 
that species has actually raised its pitch pattern higher in order to get into a frequency range where it can actually communicate with its conspecifics. So there's that aspect to to just, you know, trying to, to get your message across. And again, in nature, the clear cutting, for instance, of forests, that actually creates another challenge because leaves and trees filter out frequencies. And if you're suddenly overwhelmed with a whole bunch of sounds that you're not used to, then, you know, that's very disruptive and creates um, stress patterns in species. So in nature, being able to predict your acoustic environment and be able to use your acoustic environment to your advantage is an essential piece. Now, in the built environment of our world where we bring in animals to, you know, to live with us, remember that there are definitely boundaries on human range of hearing. So there are sounds, there are pitches that are above our range of hearing and below our range of hearing. And by the way, that's also been an essential part of being able to access what is actually going on in the animal world around us. But in the built environment, there are plenty of sounds that we're not able to hear that other species, such as cats and dogs, hear very well and can be importantly impacted in their well-being, in, in their their lifestyle by these other pitches. Not everybody probably can hear, you know, a fluorescent light. You know, we all know that there are people can... <laughs> I'm sorry. Everything is going off around here. <laughs> well, it's, it's like Timothy, Timothy Morton talks about the hyper object. You're inside this sort of, you know, hyperdimensional thing like global warming or the biosphere, and you never see the whole thing. You only see parts of it. And it's like you're inside the musical hyper object, and we're just catching catching little winks of it. But, but uh, you know, just, you know, just to get back to the fact that, that even though we can't hear our our cats and dogs in some respects are kind of giving us their their sonic feedback and those sound waves can be having an impact on us and probably are so you know stress levels are induced by having too much sensation coming at us and so those are are things to consider so Anyway, to sort of follow up on our range of hearing, however, it wasn't until Katie Payne suddenly realized that when she was with elephants at a zoo, that she was actually feel she couldn't hear it. She, she could feel sound waves. And it was because that they are communicating below our range of hearing. And so... By then, we had enough technology to be able to actually record infrasound 
that we started to realize that humans are, I mean, rather elephants are using the sonic range below our range of hearing in order to sing their songs. And by the way, bats and mice are singing way above our range of hearing. And so now we have research that is now pulling in these songsters that are around us that we didn't, we couldn't hear. There's just, you know, and you can go back over scientific history and see that, you know, that there were a lot of pronouncements that these various species were not communicating. Now we know that they are. Are bat and mice songs uh, like stepped down into human hearing and available to listen somewhere online? Because that's that's like a <laughs> like well, I'm going to mix that into so like psytrance. Yes, you can. You can hear it at the lab of Matina Calcunas Rupel. And I remember the day that Matina brought in recordings of mice. And these were just, you know, little white mice that are uh, found in nature, but also are used for lab mice. And one of the things I found so interesting was that even though the patterns of my songs were rhythmically the same, the frequency relations, the ratios were different. The field mice operated in major and minor seconds, but the lab mice operated in thirds, in major thirds. And I thought, oh, this is, what is that about? You know, I don't know what it's about, but it certainly is an interesting, you know, dichotomy here between this, it's the same species, but it, raised in different environments. I wonder, just just to throw an armchair hypothesis at that one, if it has to do with the fact that laboratory mice don't have predators and that it has, you know, like operating within a narrower spectral band means that they're less likely to sing into the hearing range of another animal that might eat them. I don't know. I'd have to think about that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know how you'd test that. Except maybe expose lab mice to predators and see if it changes. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that we can, you know, come up with a protocol that where we can test that. But, um, you know, at the moment, it's just a, a fascinating anomaly that, <laughs> that the same species would have different uh, ratios of pitch pattern. Can I pivot here? Because... I want to I want to please the audience and I think that we would be missing a beautiful opportunity if we didn't talk about your work with Roger Payne on whale song Absolutely. and the work that you've done with machine learning to analyze hydrophones from different parts of the Mesoamerican reef. Those two things feel really vital to having like a complete understanding of biomusic. Sure. So, one of my most favorite people on the planet is Roger Payne. Um Roger and I have been uh, engaged in doing biomusic research now for almost 30 years. And uh, as uh, you know, most people understand, Roger and his wife, Katie, his wife at that time, were the premier and first researchers to, first of all, establish that whales were singing songs. 
I found that to be shocking when Roger told me that he had a mighty battle to actually convince scientists that these sounds were songs. And so he and Katie focused on the structure of what they were recording. And they realized that the whale were singing in phrases, that they were singing in coupled phrases, and that there was what they called rhyming, that there would be in these coupled phrases an agreement at the end of the phrase of how that phrase would be repeated with just the, you know, the same kind of pitch pattern that had been preceding it. So it's what they call rhyming. And that has, that particular uh, research just changed everybody's understanding about what was going on out there in the oceans with humpback whales. And since then, I have spent a some time also with humpback whales trying to hear a deeper structure of how whale songs are put together. And what, um, what my colleague Josh Marquez and I have done is actually looked at a way of analyzing the the whale songs on a, an, on a larger time frame so that you are actually looking at how four or five pitches are used as the basis of a particular song and then whether they are transposed or moved along in the same uh, relationship. And so we have uncovered a very, very deep structure of whale song that is really based on a combination of just four or five pitches that are essentially what you might call the refrain and then a variation that moves away from those and sort of a, uh, an, elaborate, an elaboration section and then a return to the refrain section so that you get what in music is called an ABA. And that is such an, an old way in human music of organizing uh, music making that it's just, it's so fascinating because it also begs the question that a lot of animal researchers have been pulling their hair about. And that is, whether there is a recursive aspect to any kind of song making out in the wild, well, that that makes it right there. Is that that deep structure is actually there in whale songs, and it makes them have the ability to recall, therefore, in musical memory, a very elaborate song that takes place maybe sometimes as long as 20 or 30 minutes. And it, that ability to recall a, a seasonal song that has been created by a particular group of whales in a particular ocean, that is, is a recall that makes it possible for them to sing that communal song 
for their entire singing season, which is six months. And then when they go off to their hunting grounds in the summer, they are quiet. I mean, they are not singing. I I can talk a little bit about the sounds that they're making when they're, they're hunting together. But they're not singing the communal song while they're, they're feeding on their, their sites up in, in Alaska. When they return to the breeding grounds, they start with last year's seasonal song. So they, they have held this song together in their brains for six months. And they start by returning to the, the seasonal song that they stopped singing for six months. So that structure that we are uncovering now, a way of helping them find in their memory how that is all structured. It's a it's a fascinating process, and you know it's it just shows you how complex these social brains are in in whales. I want to ask you about because this has come up sort of a couple different times I've glimpsed this in the conversation I remember reading in Nicholas Carr's book The Glass Cage where he was talking about there being concern among some neuroscientists that children who grow up using turn-by-turn map instructions like Google Maps to get around uh, may end up growing up to suffer early onset Alzheimer's because memory is based on these uh, like orientational neural networks in the brain that like, you know, the first thing we kind of remember and therefore also the first thing we forget uh, in Alzheimer's often is where we are, how we're oriented with our environment. And you're talking about humpback whales, which go on this epic migration, a lot of vocal, not all, but a lot of vocalizing birds, are migratory animals. Humans obviously live in really complex, um, not just social groupings in terms of our interpersonal relationships, but the psychogeography of a city, you know, that we live in these complex landscapes. And I remember reading in my animal communication seminar in college, oh, the authors escaped me now, but the paper was on the cultural trap hypothesis for the emergence of, of syntactic language in birds and basically saying that they believed that more complex forms of communication emerged out of the need to develop and learn other animals' dialects because the ecosystem of that particular bird is so heterogeneous that they have to travel farther to find the tree where their mate might be, and then they have to kind of sing in a different kind of language about it. So I'm curious what your thoughts are with respect to all of this about the relationship between place and memory and song and, you know, like the aboriginals song lines across Australia and the, you know, the way that we orient ourselves in a piece of music being so similar to the way that we orient ourselves in a landscape. Mm. Let me start with what we know about Babies, human babies. Okay, so we're talking now about the children who have actually heard music while they are still in the womb. Neonatals will recognize that music when they're 
you know, firstborn. We know that because you can play same and different melodies to them. And if they hear something that's different than what they heard in the room, they'll look at it. So we know that they understand that's different than the melody that I expected it to be. We also know that instinctively mothers and fathers do something called mother ease communication with babies. And that's that sing song, oh hi, how are you? You know the words don't matter. It's really this musical interaction and babies start to pay attention to those pitch patterns that they hear their caregivers send over to them whenever they're together. And there's an entrainment, a beat entrainment aspect to babies too that you can look at online where if they hear music, they can swing their bodies or their legs pretty much in synchrony with the beat. They don't have, as again, as, as great body motor skills as, you know, they will have when they're 9, 10 years old. But they're pretty good at it. They're very good at it, actually. So infants start to understand their environment as a musical scheme that their caregivers are giving them an orientation to the world that is musical. And it becomes then part of their relationship of how are we going to interact together. And you'll hear that babies will start to learn that turn-taking that we were talking about a little while ago when mom comes in to change diapers or pick up the baby or whatever, that there'll be this, oh, hi, baby, how are you? And then oh, you have this little babbling going on from the, from the child in response. So the turn-taking starts to take place, not only sonically, but also in movement of the child's body. They'll start to you know, actually interact rhythmically with what is going on around them. There becomes a family culture of musicality, what is being played on the radio or what, you know, music is coming into their world through all these, these technologies that are now in our homes. And that starts to actually narrow the scope of what is acceptable as a musical preference. What what is my preferred music? And so it happens very quickly in, you know, whichever culture you're talking about, that my preferred music is based on the Western system of harmonic relationships, scales, and so on. In Asia, where we have languages that are tonal languages, I don't know if you've tried to actually learn Chinese, but you'll find that you make a lot of mistakes because you are not sonically 
as discriminating, you may <laughs> saying you may think that you're saying the same thing, but the pitch is not right, and so you end up you know miscommunicating because the discriminating ear for pitch is much more attuned in those languages. There are certain musical systems in the Middle East that use what we call quarter tones. There are many more pitches between C and D, for instance, in our system. There are more frequencies that are used in in music making than what we're used to. And so if you listen to, let's say, Carnatic music from southern India or you listen to Arabian music, listen to an oud, for instance, a concert, you are missing. If you are a Western kid who have grown up listening to rock and roll or or, um, used to hearing hymns played in church or or playing the piano or playing in a band or whatever, you're missing a lot of the nuance of music of other systems because your ears just not trained to hear that. Yeah. I, um, to bring it up a second time in this conversation, I've been reading a, uh, the, the book hyper objects by Timothy Morton. It's a, uh, he's an object oriented philosopher at Rice university in, in Houston. And, He's got this whole section on the the movement sort of out of the romantic era and through the modern era and into wh- whatever you want to call what we're living in now musically. You know, everything since like John Cage and Lamont Young and how they broke out of the well-tempered clavier and into uh, the, you know, just intonation and the so-called wolf notes that occur in just in you know in in these instruments that are tuned to whole ratio relationships and how it's fascinating to me that his argument Morton's argument is basically that this is a relaxation of our efforts to control music and an admission of the agency of music itself and a sort of like an invitation of the non-human back into the human artistic sphere and he like specifically says you know like if you look at the reason like we call them wolf notes because we we, we like we drove them out of civilized composition and now we're welcoming them back in and, and, and just at the moment that music that's that's written with just intonation or has just abandoned sort of any sort of classical intonation scheme, it, it makes it very difficult to tell the same story compositionally. It, you know, the, the keys don't flow into one another as well. And so you get, you know, if you know, if you move from key to key rather than sort of hang out in an ambiance, then you you get all of these unpleasant to the modern Western ear sounds. And those are the sounds of the non-human re-entering our, our space. So it's like right as right as our s- sort of story of progress is breaking down and the, the romantic telling of that story and music is breaking down, then we get just intonation and then 
you know, art always precedes science. And then within a few decades, we're studying whale song and bonobo beat entrainment. And it's like there's this there's this sense in which it required us to break out of the conceptual limitations and allow the wilderness to speak through music again before we were even capable of acknowledging that other other species were doing this. I don't know. Well, you know, so much of of how how we organize, quote, the harmony part of music making is really about how to make sure that we can play with instruments. And, you know, the more that we concentrate on the, the vocalization of music, the freer we become on that level. And if you want to hear, you know, a free-ranging vocalization Whale song is what that is. Now, with that said, what is particularly curious to me is that humpback whale song can actually be fitted into the harmonic relationships that we humans actually use in, in the Western sense. And, you know, you can hear that, you know, with Paul Winter and, and in my I also put on a composition hat every now and then, and I've created music uh, where I've played with piano and sax and recordings of whale song and have been able to make that into a, you know, a satisfying musical experience for the audience without having to, to tweak any frequencies of whales. I and mean, they're, they're, there is a kind of pure ratio of pitches that whales do seem to prefer in when they are composing their songs. And that basic relationship of what we call fourths and fifths and octaves, that just permeates their, their construction. Even if you, you know, one of the things that we analyze is what's called a slide by scientists, but in music world we call it a glissando, where they start on a pitch and then just go, whoa! That beginning pitch and the end pitch actually has a relationship to that deep structure that I was talking about. It fits into that underlying deep structure. So, you know, the, there is kind of a an underlying formation of melodic relationships that segue from the wild into human music making. It gets contrived and constrained, I think, by a lot of, of instruments trying to play together. That becomes complicated. And, you know, the orchestra form has sort of concretized a lot of those problems. But when you get back into just pure vocalization with, say, some percussion, then you get back into, I think, a purer state of how this all uh, is organized musically. Do you find it as weird as I do that we're separated from whales by more than 50 million years, <laughs> and yet these relationships are common to us. I don't find it weird. I find it very exciting. 
I mean, what do you, what do you think that's, it, it kind of, it calls to mind the, the, the uncanny efficacy of mathematics and this question of whether, you know, like sacred geometry, you know, like whether these are in some sense, these ratios are universal and cosmic and, you know, like Fibonacci retracements and, and uh, Elliott wave theory in the stock market. It's like, there it is. There's the, there's, you know, the golden ratio right there in in the day trading. So like, what the hell is going on here? Like, like W.A. Matthew in the musical life talks about, we call a musical third and a musical fifth, but the third is one fifth the length of a string and the fifth is one third the length of a string. Like, how did that happen? <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe we're going off the deep end, but we are talking about whales. So... <laughs> Well, you know, I don't know really where to go, <laughs> you know, because I think if we go into the Fibonacci direction, I'm not sure our audience is going to go with us there, you know. I think they'll follow us anywhere. Oh, they've, really? they've, they've made it over an hour so far. Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, and we haven't even gotten to the hydrophones, uh, you know, off the coast of the Mesoamerican Reef here. Feel free to take this anywhere you want. <laughs> I do find it very exciting, whether it's math, it could be a physiological uh, aspect to our beings that you know prefer certain combinations of frequencies. Certainly, the I find it so actually grounding that our brains, our ancient lizard brains are on the same sonic musico communication path as whales. I just think that is reassuring <laughs> for us that we are we are so connected to the wild through our musicality, through our musical brains. And because we have this circuitry, this musical circuitry that actually, you know, is in the deepest part of our brains and our cerebellum and in the amygdala and so on, you know, that this is the way that we can actually reconnect with the wild because we are, you know, we're looking at this huge evolution of musicality through these species and and because by the way that musical circuitry in our brain is so deep it's a it's a, a doorway to all kinds of exciting therapies and that are being used today to bring for instance autistic children into the social world or children who have uh, severe physical handicaps can, through new technology, use, again, music in order to connect socially with their communities. And the, the ability to retrain the brain through the musical circuitry after stroke or TBIs, actually growing the beat entrainment circuitry in our brains. So the, this connection of the deepness of our musicality into the natural world is just opening up all kinds of opportunities and possibilities for us. 
I, I do want to just talk briefly here about, you know, how we've been planting hydrophones off the coast of Cancun in the Mesoamerican Reef. And we've had three different sites that we've uh, used these uh, hydrophones. One is off the coast of Isla Cantoy, which is a barrier island that is a wildlife preserve, and, and you are not allowed to be out there uh, without a permit. So it's it's a pristine area. And then the second hydrophone was at a barrier island, but on the Atlantic Ocean side, so away from the interior part uh, leading into the, um, the the developed area of Cancun. And then the third area was in a an interior part of Cancun that has been developed for tourism, and there are snorkelers and divers and so on there. So we had three very distinct sonic environments and, and of course, huge data sets because we had set the hydrophones to come on every 15 minutes and then record for 30 seconds. And it, when you, you know, plant these hydrophones and leave them for six months or a year, what you have is this huge data set. And so that required us to develop a machine learning software program so that we could then start to pick up those uh, patterns of sonic expression at the reef by those species that live at the reef and those that are migratory and then those species that have to interact all the time with humans who are tourists who are doing snorkeling and so on. And so we started, you know, to we're looking again for patterns, those kinds of patterns that then create anomalies that show up, you know, we can access those. But the machine learning, you know, was an essential part of being able to start to wrestle this data into some kind of understanding of what is going on there. And so what we started to understand is there are, there are times of the year, there are times of the day, times of the night when the sound is turned up and, you know, everybody is interacting with each other and then there's silence. That That's all relational to season. It has to do with the sun as well and its placement in the sky. And obviously when you have a lot of boat traffic, and human sound making, then that also interrupts life patterns of all of these various species that are trying to survive in this uh, particular marine environment. So it's been a very interesting kind of learning curve again for somebody who's come off of a piano bench to understand, you know, how is it that we can grasp how we can understand what is going on around us in very critical uh, populations that will impact quality of life on the planet. And we can do it sonically. I mean, this is so exciting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. I think I was tracking your work and the work of other folks for for years for this very reason, just this notion of weaving 
the life world, the experience, the like the field of biosemiotics, my graduate advisor, Sean S. Bjorn Hargens, who was on episode 60 of this show, he was the one that turned me on to that, that whole discipline and the idea of like, you know, studying what it is to, to be a, a frog, communicating with other frogs in a space where you have crickets and other frog species and that this, this is all going around us all the time. And, you know, we live in a, hyper-communicative world, I guess, but again, to like welcome that wolf note into the orchestra, you know, and to feed it, it all kind of boils down to how does this reshape the way that we govern human civilization, you know, over the next few decades as this knowledge starts to, to permeate society and starts to have a bigger impact on conservation and restoration ecology and on uh, you know, development and on you know, shipping, right? You know, just the way that, you know, like the military uh, sonar affecting ocean creatures. What do you hope comes out of all of this? Like in the, you know, in another 10, 20, 50, however long, wh- what do you see as the real fruit that grows out of the seeds of your research and how do you hope that society changes in light of this knowledge well you know for me it gets down to well why is all this musicality important i think that we are we meaning in a global sense all species are in this social network where we all have a way of interacting with our conspecifics. <clears throat> and this musical communication system is a central part to how life actually gets along and moves along. And so from my perspective, if we can start to think about music, music making, musical communication as essential to survival, then we start to think much differently about our connections to each other. There's a very interesting set of research that has been done about when people make music together or they are at a, a concert together and they're moving together and so on, that our brains actually produce a neurochemical uh, neuropeptide called serotonin. It makes us feel good to be together. And one of the things that I am concerned about in the long run is that we as a species are sort of coming apart by being so focused on the visual, on emailing instead of talking to each other, of being so engaged in eye candy instead of really hearing and discriminating tone of communication with each other 
or being in the same room with each other. I mean, I much prefer, for instance, having a video call with somebody so that I can actually have that kind of body interaction with each other so that we are nodding to each other or, you know, we're showing each other that we are connected in this conversation and that there's an affirmation that I understand what you're saying and, and you understand what I'm saying. That connection is a central part, not only of our species, but it's also a central part of that we're finding out of other species. You know, being able to recognize each other just by the way we walk. You know, if you see somebody coming down the street, you can recognize who that is by the rhythmicity of the way their body moves, you know. And you can call that, for instance, a signature of that person, that you recognize that signature. Well, dolphins recognize the signature of each other when they're in the ocean. Now, what is that signature sound? They typically live in groups of three or four, these little pods of dolphins, and they hunt and sew together. And they have a signature song that they can recognize each other by. So they know, oh, well, that's, you know, that's so-and-so coming back to the pod. It's not a stranger. It's who, it's our pal. It's our, our gang. It's our, our particular little group person. And by the way, when dolphins, you know, lose one of their group, then when a new dolphin joins, they have to learn that signature sound that has been developed by the group. That acclimation to each other through rhythm, through sounds, through songs, whatever, that's what culture is built on. And the more that we actually become aware of how important this musical life that we are in, the more important it will be to understand that when you are out in the environment, that you are connected to all of that stuff, that you will, you will understand that the birds are not just making noise, but they are actually, there's a pattern that you can recognize you could imitate. You could be part of that that natural world. That's what I'm. I'm so, you know, focused on trying to bring kids into this world of bio music because it be, it becomes a connection to the planet that is so primal, so critical to their survivability. It connects them to all life forms, but it also helps them interact with their conspecifics in their in their human world and to pay attention to how the sonic environment that you live in is it is it really a positive experience for you or is it clutter is it overwhelming your ability to be all that you can be to be the full human i mean have you got too much sound in your life does it need to be cleared out every now and then so that you can actually let your brain use that pathway to understand the world. There are many, many levels of where this research is going. It's going to help us understand 
other species, how other species organize their lives, how we are connected to the larger life network around us, how we're going to understand our brains, how we're going to develop new therapies for our well-being and our wellness. All of these are part of the sonic world that is an essential, to me, even more important than eyesight, even though a lot of people would be shocked to hear that. But if you can actually think about and and listen to how rich your life is, it will become a way for you to understand the world on a level that you are not used to really accessing. And it will enrich your life. I got to say, my partner bought a vinyl record turntable last week. Yes. And we finally, finally have... A, a way of playing all of these records we've accumulated and immediately everything changed in the house immediately it was like all right we're adults now it's time to it's time to take this all very differently and everything sort of reorganized around it You're going analog yeah yeah bringing that that richness and that depth to our sonic experience and of course you know you and I it took us probably half an hour to get this call together in part because there are guys power washing my house right now. So that's the other end of the spectrum is the, you know, well, okay, I can survive this for a bit. Anyway, Patricia, I'm, I'm just in awe of the breadth and the depth of your work and the work of your colleagues. And I really appreciate you giving so many people shout outs so that folks can follow up on a, a broader cut of this entire field it's really been fun jamming with you across the glass here <laughs> so where can people find you well uh thank you for raising that because right now i'm at the university of north carolina at greensboro and i head up the biomusic program there when I left the National Academy of Sciences, um, I was recruited to come to the university and to bring all of this activity and research with me. And so that has been my post. Now, because I am so emphatic about the, the importance of this for children, uh, I'm in the throes of developing an animation series that will have an interactive website and a gaming app as well so that kids start to understand how connected they are to the natural world through their musical selves, their musical brains. It's They've been gifted with this because of the evolution of our species, and this is a way for them to actually learn about the world and increase their knowledge through their listening and their their musical brains so that uh that app will be out sometime and it'll be called what well right now the series is called caruso's wild sounds and uh we're in the throes of trying to get the attention of the big streaming services like um, 
Netflix and Amazon and so on. So we're hoping that we'll be able to get this out there for kids and help them tune up their ears so that they understand how important it is to be social using their musicality. And so people can also find your research on the UNC website. Also. That's right. That's right. You can just, you know, Google me at uh, University of North Carolina at Greensboro. I can't remember the URL right now, but it's, all those, <laughs> it's there. you'll find it. All those dotty to you URLs are awful anyway. <laughs> I know. They're never as tight, you know, as the commercial side. They lack a certain cadence. <laughs> they're just not cool that's all <laughs> they're just not cool their, their groove is not in the pocket anyway yeah. it's been a blast thank you so much for being on the show okay great thanks again for listening I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did Future Fossils is part of the MindPod network, along with Third Eye Drops, The Astral Hustle, Synchronicity Podcast, and an oodle of other fascinating programs. I encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned, because we have some awesome episodes coming up on Future Fossils, including a conversation with David Krakauer, the president of the Santa Fe Institute for Complexity Science. So stick around and have a most excellent eon.